The Viewpoint is leading the conversation all across South Africa right now. Stay tuned to SAFM. In DE and RH, a 2014 case handed down on 19 June 2015, Madlanga J in his introductory paragraph writes, and I quote, Undertakings of fidelity, whether in the form of Hulawa, Holaiwa, or Uguyalwa, or solemn vows, or any other form dictated by various cultures or religions, are no guarantees that adultery will not take place in marriage. In fact, adultery is probably a fractionally younger than the institution of marriage. In the legal context, when a spouse commits adultery, does the non-adulterous spouse have a right of action in delict against the third party for injury or insult to self-esteem and loss of comfort and society of her spouse? If so, is there justification for the continued existence of the action? These questions are at the center of this application. To cut a long story short, infidelity, well, tough luck, essentially, because there are no or there is no legal recourse, certainly in South Africa, following that 2015 judgment to adultery. But then, of course, children change the dynamic altogether in the context of access to the rights that a child has, more particularly when you read Section 282 of the Constitution. The best interests of the child are paramount. What then becomes of this mess, really, that infidelity creating children, extramarital children, in a home setup does? Mr. Ian Ellis, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to listening to your thoughts in relation to the law on this. I don't imagine this isn't a growing reality, given how things are in this modern-day society. Good evening, Speaker. Good evening to the, view, to the listeners as well. No, this, the whole issue with adultery, as the learned judge says, runs hand in glove with the whole issue, with the whole sanctity of marriage aspect. And the reality is, is that if one even looks at the history from a, from a South African legal perspective, at one stage, adultery was regarded as a criminal offense on our book. Which yeah. basically got repealed uh, repealed early on in the 1900s, and uh, subsequent to that judgment, any claim against the, um, the for loss of affection, if one could say, against the uh, against the third party, was also repealed. So basically, there is no action against any third party, and that's why South African courts implemented what's called the clean break or no fault divorce system. So there's no punishment if one could say, on infidelity or misconduct to that effect. But, but. the biggest thing is, mm. is what happened, and that's the case with the children, when there is an adulterous affair. Now, there's one major aspect, and that is we've got the Children's Act, and we've got the Maintenance Act. And those two deal with the aspect of the relationship and the obligations of both the parents as well as the duty of, of of support that one owes to the child, irrespective of their matrimonial status or not, and irrespective of whether that child was born out of wedlock. The, obviously, the biggest issue comes with regards to the enforcement of rights, which is in terms of Section 18 as well as Section 20 and 21 of 
the Children's Act and in particular Section 9 in respect of the Maintenance Act, which gives one the right uh, to claim maintenance for the child, and that is irrespective of whether one is married or not married to the, uh, to the, uh, to the other party. What is the role of the family advocate in this situation? Because I would imagine this is very contested terrain. Forget the emotions associated with this. But the child oneself is probably not in a position to enforce any action on either of the parents involved in this complex setup. How then, in the context of Section 28.2, are the interests of the child in line with the Children's Act and the Maintenance Act to ensure that the child, irrespective of what happens between the parents, is not affected adversely? Unfortunately, when one deals with family law in particular, you're dealing with the highest emotional toll. It's not, it's not like your normal um, criminal matter or civil litigation. The problem is emotions do run high, and the role of the family advocate, in essence, deals primarily with assisting with the determination of the rights and the custodial arrangements that need to be made for the children and access rights between the primary the primary caregiver, which in most cases is usually the mother, and the and the and the father and the father, who, irrespective <coughs> of whether they are married, remarried, not married. Um, after 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 define their access, their access and custodial rights. At the moment, we've got a system where both parties have, if one could say, joint and equal decision making. But that isn't in the problem that one has when dealing with any type of law with these highly emotional and contentious issues. That often gets put into dispute. The problem, is, and the problem is that is what the family advocate has needed to go ahead and assess um, using social workers and lawyers themselves or advocates to to determine what's in the best interest of the child. And that itself is often a very difficult and murky, wor- murky water. It certainly is, but. Let's reflect now on the marital regime, because let's say now as these things tend to achieve, they achieve divorce and animosity between the erstwhile lovebirds, more especially when there's a child in the mix that extra complicates the scenario. Do particular marital regimes impact the benefits or rights or dues otherwise that the child born within this marriage, but not necessarily of this marriage? The marital regime has got very little has got very little uh, interference in regards to the child. The problem that does arise is, say, for example, parties are married in community of property. Mm. The, the maintenance needs of the child kind of become uh, become a joint household expense. It doesn't just become the expense of either the mother of the child or the father of the child. Mm. It basically affects both of them because it's a dual expense. Um, even if it's an unwanted one, which often leads to the divorce in its own right. But as far as it goes, the marital regime itself has very little bearing upon the consequences or on one's duty that they have to support their, to support their offspring. So the long and short of it, irrespective of the marital regime, that does not, or if it does to a very limited expense, extent, rather, impact on the child. But Correct. it does have an impact if, say... If- Two people are married in community of property for 
it is that marriage it is that marriage or that marital regime to the extent in, in fact d- divorce then doesn't even play a role there because there would still be obligations due to the child from that joint estate from the joint estate precisely and unless they actually divorced in that way that it only remains the obligation of the parent of that child but during the but during the subsistence and the continuation of that marriage, it's a joint expense. Mm-hmm. That that child coming from an adulterous affair becomes the expense of that of that joint estate. Let's move the conversation the slightly. Same as the car and the dog. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, um, Ian. I'm just minded to move with time. This then becomes an important conversation only because so many people are impacted by it. Maintenance. Child maintenance in South Africa will keep any family attorney busy for days if nothing changes. And the reality is that right, as sanctioned as it is by law, for many people, particularly women, as you have mentioned, in most cases are the ones who have to bear the brunt of raising the child in in a single-parent household. The other parent tends to get away with it, even though there are at least recognized legal protections. How do we change the narrative? How do we change what is so normal for the other parent who is not living with the child to have both non-custodial anything as well as obligations to the child financially? The problem, in actual fact, is that it's, it's what you said is a very complicated scenario. It's not, and it's changing from the aspect that it's not just one party bearing the brunt of the expense and the other one not bearing the, uh, not having the access and, and custodial rights. Mm. That's where the that's where the entire litigation process is overwhelmed. And unfortunately, the act is very theoretical in its application, and it's great because it looks at it on an ideal world, but it doesn't take into account real life situations and real life people. Because while the while the parties are sitting and arguing, money is getting expended, mm. which could actually be utilised for the benefit of the child or the children. But that's where it suddenly the, the logic gets lost. Where one is saying you can be seeing the child X amount for this type of period, but you, because whether you work or you don't work, you will need to get X amount as far as maintenance. But more often than not, those those boundaries get blurred very easily because one then finds that with inflation it doesn't cover what the costs are and then the other party is often uh, borne the brunt of, of radical changes in regards to the child to the, the child's uh, to the child's custodial arrangement. And what would you propose as a genuine response to the act's theoretical approach? Could the act perhaps move or sort of demand differently? In other words, I'm probing the reality versus the idealistic position from which the Act moves. Well, first of all, they need to find a way to get the Act and the maintenance processes to speed up. Is the problem is the maintenance courts are swamped, and there's not sufficient and there's not sufficient resources being applied to them. Second, which slows down the process undeniably and allows for stalling. Secondly, with the People should, in actual fact, be they they should have a more thorough assessment. Look at it and force every and look at having people being having people entering into mediation and proper formal mediation, not um, a half-baked mediation approach that's often adopted and say, "Well, we can't reach a decision." Realistically, there needs to be full disclosure 
before the facts even start being, prese- uh, being presented. And the parties have got to be compelled to make the necessary disclosures before um, the matter even looks at proceeding to trial to say A, B, and C are in place, what actually is wanted from the parties, and to be mediated properly and to look at that in the private sector of increasing the amount of mediation and the extent of mediation before one goes into court on these matters. Should these matters always, therefore, against everything you've said, be adjudicated by judicial officers? They're going to have to be, because that's the only way to have, a, to have a court order. But one thing is, if all the facts are there beforehand, it also curtails the argument. So instead of it taking days upon days to sit and argue about the price of bread, this should natural for that should in actual fact already be before the court of saying specifically this has been discussed, this has been canvassed, this is what's in dispute and and rectify mm. these issues. When they when a, when a woman is saying it costs twenty thousand Rand a month in food and the and the father saying it costs should cost you three thousand Rand a month in food, there must in actual fact be support yeah. to show either why one is too low or one is too high. At the end of the day, if you're dealing with one, ch- one child, you cannot be 20,000 rand in food. It also might not be as low as 2,000 rand. There has to be a, a, a standard yardstick presented, and that's where one can go ahead and look at the average of how the best way to actually deal with it is. That this is your basic food stuff, and where do we go after this? At the end of the day, they could, if they if they earlier on before it became so so um, um, infamous, they used to even allocate cigarette expenses at one stage in, in maintenance court. If they can do that for cigarette expenses, they could do it for a loaf of bread. They certainly can. Interesting thoughts. A very complex space in which family law in this context is operating. But let's say thank you for your time, Ian. Thoroughly appreciate talking to you and the lecture that you've offered us. Thank you very much.